from Hollywood, it's rated LGBT Radio, starring your host, Rob Watson! Welcome, 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 welcome to this installment of Rated LGBT Radio. I am your host, Rob Watson, and as always, we do have a really incredible show lined up for you this week. Um, last week, if you listened to our podcast, um, you heard Brandon Wolf, good friend of our show, um, going back several years, and uh, Brandon was on talking about a lot of the issues that were going on in the state of Florida, where he is now the uh, uh, public relations director for Equity Florida, Equality Florida. Um, Brandon and how I got to know him was having him on the radio show talking about um, a huge and horrible night of his life, uh, which was June 12, 2016. Brandon was in the um, nightclub in, in Orlando, the Pulse nightclub, when uh, Omar Mateen, a 29-year-old man, came in and killed 49 people. Um, a couple of those people were some of Brandon's closest friends. This week, um, we have a very special guest uh, with us, um, uh, and it is related to Brandon's story in a very big way um, because we have the owner of Pulse Nightclub, Barbara Poma. Barbara obviously owned the nightclub when um, this all took place. But she has taken that tragedy, and she is moving it forward. Um, the, uh, the incident was the deadliest incident in the history of violence against LGBTQ people in the United States, um, as well as the deadliest terrorist attack in the U.S. since September 11th. And it was the deadliest mass shooting by a single gunman until another gunman uh, took fire in Las Vegas in 2017. What Barbara is working on, though, is she has moved from nightclub owner to being the founder of an organization called One Pulse. One Pulse is a nonprofit organization, and it was established to, in the aftermath of the tragedy to create a sanctuary of hope and honor to preserve the legacy of the people killed, um, including not only the 49 killed, but 68 injured, and countless others who were affected by this. Um, the, the organization claims four pillars and is part of its mission. Um, it is set out to create and support a memorial that opens hearts. It is um, set to open a museum that opens minds, an educational program that opens eyes, and a legacy scholarship that opens doors. Uh, we're going to talk to Barbara not only about that, but about some fundraising efforts that are going to be taking place here in California. So um, great, great things are happening out of, out of something tragic. Um, first, I want to welcome on my illustrious co-host, the editor of the Los Angeles Blade magazine, Brody Levesque. Brody, welcome to the show. Hey, good afternoon. How are you, Rob? Uh, and good day, good afternoon to all of our listeners. Um, today uh, in New York, uh, the former head 
of the uh, Human Rights Campaign, Alphonse David, who's actually been a guest on our show, um, right. filed suit against the organization. And he uh, filed HRC because he says that he was unfairly uh, fired uh, and it was due to racial prejudices um, within HRC. Uh, and he said in his lawsuit that um, this happened uh, amid a deserved reputation for unequal treatment of its non-white employees. And then he was told explicitly that he was paid less because he was black. The publisher of the Los Angeles Blade, uh, Troy Masters, actually pulled up um, a comparative pay scale over the last several years um, for the human rights campaign. The president of the human rights campaign that Alphonse replaced, Chad Griffin, was compensated with salary and everything at about $570,000 per annum. Davis was 200 and thousand and some change. I mean, there was a stark difference. Right. And if you went and looked at some of the other top brass of the human rights campaign and some of the other things that were going on, there was a massive disparity there as well. Um, the organization uh, has been headed primarily by white cisgender men, except for two females. Uh, and there have been long, long time uh, rumblings about the atmosphere uh, at HRC uh, that it is in fact a place where if you're you know a member of the black or Latino or Asian uh, communities uh, queer or not you don't want to be working for HRC because uh, there's problems there uh, so today in U.S. District Court for the Eastern District of New York uh, Alphonse Sudom and uh, if you will uh, go to the LosAngelesLate.com I literally just put the story up and uh, the Washington Blades uh, White House reporter, Chris Johnson, wrote the story. And in there are all the details. Uh, he actually had an opportunity today to sit down and talk with Alphonse. He did an interview with him. And uh, there's a lot of information there. There'll be more to follow as we update the story. Uh, but that is, you know, within the LGBTQ uh, community, uh, a rather massive story uh, today. And, uh, yeah, yeah, so... That's uh, that's where we're at with that one. So, Brody, um, and I know we enjoyed having Alphonse on. He was um, a wonderful guest. We had a great conversation, and I would encourage people to look up that uh, podcast uh, where we got we got to talk to him directly. Um, I know he was let go because of the um, uh, Andrew Cuomo situation. Um, do you? Have you heard any prospects on whether that in his lawsuit is a viable um, concern that that was not really fireable and that these other things were factors? I mean, the the pay scale thing is shameful. Well, it's it's more than that. Um, there was a, a rather public dispute over an investigation that was launched by HRC's uh, executive board into what role uh, that Alphonse played in the Governor Como scandal. Um, Como uh, was actually uh, someone who worked as a consultant with the, with the former New York governor. There were allegations that involved one particular uh, woman who had 
um, come forward. There was a report that was put out by New York Attorney General Letitia James, who suggested that uh, Alphonse David had assisted in efforts by by the governor's staff at the time to discredit that particular woman who was alleging sexual misconduct. Uh, however, David has consistently denied any wrongdoing in that case. Um, But the lawsuit itself actually goes much broader across the spectrum of the current uh, environment at HRC. Uh, And so, um, again, I would ask that folks go to LosAngelesLate.com, read Chris's reporting. Uh, He goes into the minutia of it. Uh, and, and talks about, you know, all the things at the HRC that are problematic. I mean, as someone who was formerly assigned to Washington, D.C. for a wire service for years, and also uh, I was the Washington Bureau Chief for LGBTQ Nation magazine when it first started uh, over a decade ago, uh, there were problems even then with HRC, um, complaints about, uh, the organization being toned after this was in addition to, you know, some of the racial discriminatory undertones of the organization. Also because HRC had a nasty habit of going into certain places outside of the DC area and sucking all the oxygen and funding out of the room. Um, and, and that was something that was a point of contention uh, for many years. And I heard that from various members of different other LGBTQ uh, nonprofits and members of the different uh, equality federations and even the folks on the ground with the LGBT centers uh, across the United States, that HRC um, had a tendency to grab all the, you know, the fame and glory and the money, and they weren't very good about sharing it back. So there's been an ongoing issue with HRC for actually quite a number of years now. So this is not yeah, a I've, new thing. I would I would say that, that that goes well beyond the last 10 years because um, I know even during the Clinton administration when, by the way, the HRC was then led by a woman, um, but even so it was uh, not – and to be fair, they were in kind of a rock-and-a-hard-place situation with the Clinton administration, but they seemed to be much more apologists for mistakes that the administration was making than really advocates um, for the LGBTQ community, um, which is really what they should have been um, at that time. But they always, they seem to want to uh, dictate to people at large what our issues should be rather than the grassroots driving the issues. And different issues like marriage equality um, even though HRC eventually came around, they originally poo-pooed and were, were not interested. Um, you know, it wasn't fitting their legislative agenda. Um, but then the grassroots kind of overtook them and the Republicans fighting it overtook them and they, they had to react, which was sort of ironic because when a book came out about it, I do remember one thing that was particularly irksome was the author of that book was trying to portray uh, uh, Chad Griffith at the time as being the quote-unquote Rosa Parks of marriage equality, which was, <laughs> you know. Yeah. I actually had a conversation with Rob Reiner uh, on the steps of the Supreme Court 
during the um, Ogrebefell uh, oral arguments, the day of the oral arguments. And I asked Rob about that, and he kind of snorted because he was involved with the organization that Chad uh, had been involved with in California after Prop 8 that led a lot of the fight. And this was before Chad went to HRC. So, yeah, that, that characterization I've even heard, um, you know, previously. So it's just, I don't know. It's a little ludicrous. Um, well, before we yeah. start with our guest, um, this is on a very personal note. I am one of the press corps that descended on Orlando. Uh, as a matter of fact, at the time of Pulse, I was uh, staying, working remote uh, from my son's home in Savannah, Georgia. I immediately left as soon as we got wind of it. I had a friend of mine at the Orlando Sentinel who told me I was part of the press contingent there. I did speak to Barbara. She more than likely and without fault doesn't remember me, and that's just fine. Um, I have to say that uh, from Pulse itself all the way through to the One Pulse Foundation, which the Los Angeles played, uh, has kept up with, and, and we've covered uh, everything from uh, even recently, there was an act of vandalism at the memorial. Uh, but the one thing about Barbara is that um, she has, an undying commitment to our community. Uh, she is an incredible force of nature. And I got to tell you, as a, as a journalist, um, she's impressive. And, and it is indeed an honor to have her here on the show. Um, I am completely supportive of what the One Pulse Foundation is doing, what it stands for. Um, and this is beyond, of course, my friendship with Brandon, and of course your friendship with Brandon, uh, but uh, I'm just sometimes in awe of what Barbara has been able to do, and I will note for our listeners that Barbara has had the, you know, the support of Buddy Dyer, the mayor of Orlando, in fact, the entire community um, of Orlando. They really are one Paul. And with that, I'll turn it back to you. And with that, I, since we've talked so much about her, it's time for, for Barbara to come on and defend herself. Barbara, welcome <laughs> to the show. <laughs> uh, thank you both so much for having me. That's quite an introduction. I got a little choked up, so it's still, of course, emotional work. And just to hear all that, it's, thank you for your support. It means so much. Oh, well, thank, no, thank you for, for, being, for being you. Um, Barbara, speaking of emotional, I kind of want to take you back to uh, where this all began, because you you established the nightclub itself in honor of your your brother John. Um, tell us about John. What what was he like, and and how did that inspire you? Well, John was everything I'm not. So I, I just always lead with that because it's so true. He was very witty and funny and, and he was not serious and he was a rule breaker and I'm a rule follower. Like I'm the, I'm total A type personality. Check your boxes, follow mom's rules. And John was just like, none of that was happening. So he um, was my very first uh, best friend in life. I loved being with him and um, it was really through him that I connected into the LGBTQ plus community and grew up in it. Um, mostly because when John was coming out, it was, not a pretty sight. Um, you know, his coming out story is much like many that you hear, sadly, in our stereotypical Italian Catholic family. Um, so it took some time in adjusting, and adjusting, and a lot of that time 
whenever John wanted to leave the house, it was like, take your sister with you, you know? And um, so he did. He was about 18. <laughs> I was about 14. Um, and so John's like, we're going to the beach, which was not a lie. Um, but we didn't go to the beach. My mom thought we were going to. Um, he took me to the gay beach, and he took me to tea dance and um, the Fort Lauderdale Strip. So I just grew up dancing with drag queens and, and gay men. It was my normal. It's everything I knew and loved. Um, I thought everyone had a fabulous older gay brother. <laughs> it was the best thing since sliced bread. I consider myself extraordinarily lucky. <laughs> but um, that was that was my connection to the community. And although you know um, we wound up owning Pulse, Pulse like it was never my dream in life to to grow up and own a gay bar. This is not how that happened. But it was you know it was an idea of our our best friend who happened to be gay who always wanted to own a bar here in Orlando and went to my husband with an incredible business plan. You know. And this will be great. This will be great. My husband's like, no, I, I, you know, I'm, I'm good. I don't need to own a gay bar. <laughs> and uh, we're in a restaurant business and hospitality. But, uh, yeah, he wasn't really keen on the idea. And so uh, Ron kept pushing for it. And, and, and he looked at me, my husband looked at me, goes, if you want to do this and you want to run it and you want to manage it and do all of that, then I'll, I'll fund it and I'll do it. And he did. So I was really um, lucky to have a husband who was so generous and a, and a friend who had such a great idea. So that's how, you know, it's, um, I got reconnected to the community. That, you know, Pulse did that for me. Um, I don't know if you know this, but I lost, um, well, we lost John in the AIDS epidemic early in 1991. Right. Actually coming up on his anniversary, February 13th. And so when he died, I lost my connection completely to the community. So Pulse, Pulse gave it back to me many years later. Well, that's I'm glad. I'm glad you got it back. What What was your experience um, early days running Pulse and and being reconnected? Oh, it was it was a blast. I mean, I think about this. It's 2004. I I am a mom of three, so I have got a two year old at home and a five year old and a 14 year old at home, and so I'm raising kids and working by day and. And I didn't, you know, Ron would do a lot of the night work and I would do all the day work. That's pretty much how we divided the, the responsibilities because I, I was up at 5 o'clock in the morning feeding babies. So um, it was, to me, though, it was like a time warp, just going back and just seeing the, the club filled with people dancing and, and having their friends with them, their straight friends with them, because that was really important to us when we first started Pulse is that we wanted to be a beautiful, clean space that you'd be proud to bring your mom. It's really important to us, and it was. Um, so, sad, sad, yeah. But yeah. Having having created that space, um, take us to June twelfth. Um, where where were you when you found out there was a problem at the club, and and what happened? I was in New Mexico. Not in Mexico. I was in Mexico in Cancun um, with my daughter, who had then had her having her high school graduation. So we were on our mother daughter trip with a couple of her friends and a couple of the moms celebrating their high school graduation when I got the call, um, which would have been, you know, we were in different time zones, so it was a little bit after 2 a.m. when the phone rang, and so I was pretty much on it um, from the beginning. I was on the call from the very beginning. And what, was your, what were your thoughts and, and what, what, what ran through you as you heard? Uh, at first, I, I could not understand what my manager was saying to me. I, we never had any problems at Pulse. It, could, it just, didn't, just wasn't making any sense to me. And we had had in Orlando, just the night prior, we had a shooting um, with Christina Grimmie, um, which was a horrible loss to our community, a shock to our community that she was killed in our city. 
And so when I first heard the word shooting, now mind you, I'm in a loud bar myself, and I had to step outside, and I, my manager screaming, there, he's shooting, he's shooting, he's shooting. And I like, kept saying to him, I'm like, no, that was last night, that's not, and I go, that shooting was last night. He's like, no, he's inside shooting at Pulse right now, and I couldn't understand what he was saying. Oh so I had God. to step outside, and, and um, I stepped outside where I could hear him better, and I pretty much collapsed. And I just, um, the women who were with me carried me back to my room, and we turned on the news, and before you knew it, it was, you know, on, on national media. Um, they helped me get a plane ticket out of there, the first flight out at 8 a.m. I was completely in a state of shock. It's, I don't know really how to explain what that was like, except for the darkest, darkest, scariest moments of your life, because all I kept screaming to him was, please tell me no one's dead. Like, please tell me everyone's okay. Please tell me everyone's okay, because I couldn't grasp like what he was really saying we didn't know yet it's a terrorist attack like we didn't know you know we just he just he'd gotten out so fast and I started doing a roll call with the staff like where's where's Bobby you know where's Kate where's you know going through everybody like take a roll call where's Brian and he made him try to contact people and find out where they were if they were still inside or if they'd gotten out mm. and, and so take us through the next week what what I mean obviously the press descended. Brody, Brody was there talking to you. What, um, what, what were your thoughts, and what was, what was your reaction to the reactions? Took me, took me a while to um, grasp the reaction of the city and really the world. <laughs> um, I was in, I, I guess they, when they call it a state of shock, because I, I didn't know if one day had passed or if five days had passed, like, you know, I didn't have any concept of time, couldn't sleep, couldn't eat, and, and so I was just really just trying to wrap my brain fully around what was happening. I was suddenly, like, not allowed to leave my house. I wasn't allowed, I would, you know, the press was on a pulse, but I wasn't allowed to be at pulse. The people who surrounded me immediately kept me home, and um, I tried not to watch too much TV because it was... Um, too hard and I just wanted to be down there and be with everyone and but I was kept pretty isolated here at home but when it started to click in you know it was that too was just pretty surreal you know seeing Eiffel Tower lit up and the Australian you know opera house and the vigils all around the world and our city and and our country it was really hard to to digest and really understand yeah no I, I can't even imagine for you, what it was like. I mean, there were a lot of personal tragedies, which I'm sure you had several yourself, but then to have your creation, your your safe space that you created, that you were the heart and soul of, just completely violated. Um, that That's, that's got to be a very unique kind of pain um, to, to try to work through. Um, but work through you have. Um, where did the idea for um, One Pulse come from? You know, something like this had not happened on private property before. So when the FBI was finished with their investigation, um, they had called me and just said, like, you know, hi, Mrs. Pomey, you need to come pick up your keys and sign some paperwork. We're done here. And I was just like, well, I don't know what you're saying to me right now. What are you, what are you saying? And I said, you need to come and you need to sign the papers and show you the inventory and just sign off and get your property back. So I had to go inside um, four days 
I'm sorry, four weeks and two days after the shooting. I'll never forget it. And I had to go inside with them. And so I had entered the building and had experienced what I can only describe as when a soul has left a human body, because it kind of felt like that when I was with my brother when he took his last breath, like all of a sudden he was just a shell of himself and Pulse was completely a shell of itself. It was was gone. The spirit of it was gone. It was not what it was. You could feel it. And I knew instantly it was sacred. Like I knew instantly we could not dance in there again. I knew instantly I could not open it like I was not opening it to the public or to dance or I don't know how people have done that, but God bless them, but I couldn't. Um, so right. that just led me on the journey of what to do next. And I really just cold called Oklahoma City and 9-11 teams separately, and they took me in and started the foundation, and they, they kind of gave me the, the guidebook on how this process uh, works, and they've been our partners ever since. That's, that's both wonderful and horrific that there actually is an infrastructure and, and a network that there have been so many of these things mm-hmm. that I'm, I'm very glad on a personal level you got that support, but just it's, um, you know, very, very surreal. Um, what has happened with the, the physical club itself since then? Um, is it still there? Has it been torn down? Mm-hmm. No, the club still stands in its entirety just as it was left. Um, we have um, designed and built a interim memorial where people still visit every day. Um, we did that because we knew that the permanent memorial would take so many years after learning the process, and we wanted to get it really, really right. Um, right. So we, we constructed an interim memorial. So the Pulse building still stands. Um, that was part of the decision made through our community, through surveys and input. They didn't want the building torn down. So it's still there. You can still see it. But no one has gone inside. And what, as um, in the conjunction of of building the memorial, which um, is going to be just a few blocks away from there, as I understand it, um, what what will the memorial be like, and and will the the original Pulse nightclub continue to stand? Yes, the memorial, the permanent memorial uh, design, which you can see on our website, will be exactly where the Pulse nightclub stands today. That's that's where the memorial itself will be. Okay. The education center, which now is a working title, whether it's a museum or a center uh, for something, um, an institute, it, it, it will be about about a third of a mile down the way. And then we have a one like a three block journey that connects Pulse to the level one trauma center, which, which was thankfully so close to Pulse um, that so many people lived. So we also are we are building a, a parkway, like a linear walkway, a park that you can walk down. That we called our survivors walk, because people you know ran there, were carried there, put in cars, and, and so we want to have a place, a space to honor them. So really, it's a three component of a project. You have the Pulse Memorial, which has been designated, thankfully, to, by President Biden as a, as a national federal memorial. Then they have the, the education center, a third of a mile away, and then the survivors walk, which is a three block journey. God, that's uh, that's so inspiring and and sadly wonderful. I mean, the 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 prospect of of those components. Um, talk to us about the education programs that are, are one of the pillars of the organization. So we, yeah, we we have an incredible uh, vice president of education. His name is Dr. Earl Moat. He's uh, got a doctorate in social psychology, and so he has been launching programs. We have. We've launched one last year. We have two or three more launching in 2022. 
And they are anything from showing some short films, uh, having great talkbacks with, with, with experts and people who produce and direct these films and star in them. But the topics are intersectionality at all levels, whether it be the intersection of LGBTQ plus in the faith community, in the black community, Hispanic Latinx communities. Um, and we talk about the transgender experience that's actually airing next week. Um, and those are all free to the public and have been virtual. Um, we also have something we call the tribute program, which is a tribute to our 49, but the TRI or an acronym to discuss how we think, relate, and influence one another. And so those are, that's a, a three-modular program that we have designed for organizations, large and small. They can do in person or virtually um, because we've had so many organizations coming to us saying, the story is amazing and powerful, you know, teach us about how to create a more inclusive and um, community, even in our workspaces. So you'll see a bunch of things launching. We've got a faith council, which is actually not forward-facing, but it is a safe space for faith leaders of very conservative churches to come together for eight sessions and talk about LGBTQ plus um, issues, language, how to get the, how they can feel welcome in their churches, about you know, their fears of of allowing them into their churches and welcoming them and being affirming, like what does that mean for their congregation? They don't know how to have these conversations, right? So we really believe faith drives a lot of the, the discourse, and not for, especially for our youth who are homeless and families who disown their, their children. So we wanted to tackle that as well, but that's just something that always give, it actually giving those pastors and reverends a safe space to have those conversations. So we have quite a few things coming out this year and that we're working on. That's astounding and incredible. Um, one of the things, and you mentioned as part of one of the educational programs, is intersectionality. And um, a lot of people have been impacted by the fact that the night that happened at Pulse, it was Latin night, and so many of the patrons and victims were a Latino. Um, can you speak to the intersectionality of the, the horror and... Um, have have you? I'm sure you've had outreach from both both and intersected communities. We have. I mean, 96% of our victims that night were black and brown. Um, so that's it's a very large consideration to consider that. And you know, we've had horror stories come from our victims' families. Uh, one, well, like for instance, we have a father who um, led a church in the Carolinas that he started grew and grew to a very large church there. And when his daughter was killed at Pulse, they wouldn't bury her. Mm-hmm. And so he had to find a church who would bury his daughter. His black church wouldn't do it. And so we talk about what that looks like and how this, because the LGBT conversation fits into every conversation because it fits into every culture, right? Every race, every gender. Um, it's, it's a global conversation. So it's, it's ever encompassing to us. Um, to to work that into everything we do. No, that's um, yeah, it's so important, and it's it's. Um, I'm really thrilled that you guys can be a focal point for that kind of conversation because you know just relating to the subject that Brody and I were talking about at the top of the show um, with the challenges of HRC, where some of that intersectionality has not been recognized um, or, or honored or um, rectified in some ways. Um, what, what is your, your thoughts on, on that kind of visioning? Yes, I was, I was thinking that exactly when you guys were talking about what's happening there, and it's, it's happening um, in all organizations. As a matter of fact, our 
our community just started a black um, boardroom leadership institute. And so, you know, I've joined that. Me and my board chairman have joined to be part of those, you know, six or seven all-day sessions to talk about that. I mean, I'm not even talking about the black intersection with the LGBTQ+. But it's, 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 it's double. It hits them double. I mean, because, you know, you, everyone thinks it's just when you're LGBTQ+, you're marginalized. You know, add something else on top of that, like being black, being Hispanic. Right, thing of a It's it's worse, and it's compounded, and, and people aren't talking about it. They're they're just now talking about this in, in the, without it, the LGBTQ plus element. <laughs> Thank you, know, HRC is bringing that out to the forefront. But it's a real thing, and it was a real thing even when the pulse shooting happened. People were, you know, the, the Hispanic community was feeling not heard. Like it's it was Latin night, and, and I know that for many people who went to pulse who weren't Latin who went all the other nights of the week. They didn't understand it because the Pulse, they had ownership of Pulse too, right? But this is an already marginalized community. Yeah, it's, I mean, it, and we've had um, many people of color um, on the show, and we've, we've talked about this, and it is that, that um, they're, they're in an LGBTQ space, but then feel marginalized for race, and then they're in their ethnic community and they're marginalized for being LGBTQ and finding, you know, it's like we need to make them feel at home in, in all the environments. I mean, it's, mm-hmm. it is their home. They have every right to it as much as anybody else. Um, Brody, I want to bring yeah. you in since you, you were on the scene um, at that time and, um, you know, talk to Barbara there. What, what are your thoughts that, you want to share or ask her about um, in present day? Well, I, I think, and hi, Barbara, how are you? Um, I, I think that as I remember that time, the, the one thing that did stand out to me probably the most um, was watching the survivors uh, with then Vice President Joe Biden. And, um, you know, it was a matter of really putting out community empathy. And the one thing that I discovered while I was down there, and and Barbara, I'm sure you would agree with this, um, but it it was that sense of spirit of Orlando Strong. You know, we're all one pulse. And I think what probably stood out to me the most was that the from all the interviews I conducted, and, and I think my colleague Michael Waivers at the Washington Blade, who was also there during that time period, uh, doing separate interviews. I was down there for a wire service. Uh, Michael was down there for the Washington Blade. But I think we both picked up on the same thing. And, and Barbara, I think you'd probably agree with this. And, and Brandon has said this to me many times over the last few years. Pulse wasn't just a nightclub. Pulse wasn't just a place where you went to drink and dance and meet friends. Pulse was a sense of community. Pulse was their neighborhood safe space. And that's what made what happened at Pulse, uh, you know, such a wound upon the spirit and soul of the community. Barbara, would you agree with that? Because that was the impression that I got. Yeah. I mean, true words have never been spoken. It's absolutely true. And that's, something that was really important to us and it was really important to my staff. We started off with that mission of everyone who walks in that door is welcome. Everyone who walks in that door is family. And that's how we were. That's how the staff was. Um, we were a place, um, unlike other bars, 
where, you know, you normally walk in, it's just twinks or right, or if it's just girls, it's just bears. And, and so, or it's just, you know, the most gorgeous men with their shirts off, right? It, it had to be, yeah, but that's not what Pulse was. And we wanted everyone to walk in there to see someone that looked like them. Um, girls and boys alike, so the girls on the bar, the boys on the bar, which everyone told me would never work, but it did. Um, and everyone was of different ages, colors, sizes, um, and, and genders. It was just really important to us that everyone was represented every night of the week. And so that was something we worked hard at building, and that's, and that's really the core of who we are. I think that when you talk about the response, what, what makes Orlando different, but, you know, um, part of that, part of the process that we did when we started was this community survey, which you can see online, you can see all the answers to it, but um, family survivors, first responders in our community were all open to take it. They all had their different codes and all their responses were kept, you know, according to who they were. But one of the very last questions on that survey, which again modeled after 9-11 Oklahoma City who gave us theirs, was how do you want to feel when you come here to this memorial space, right? Our community chose these six words, which were love, hope, unity, courage, strength, and acceptance. Those are powerful because trauma generally divides cities. Um, movement, social movements are divided cities, right? You think about George mm-hmm. Floyd. You think about Black Lives Matter, right? You think about all the things that are happening, po- politics, division. Not in Orlando. We chose a very different path. When 9-11 had done their survey, part of their six words were words like grief, anger, sorrow, loss, sadness, which is exactly how you feel when you go there. Our families that are part of the process of the Memorial Museum say to me over and over again, we want this to be a beautiful space that people want to come to. Our kids are having the time of their lives. We, we don't, please don't make it sad. We want people to know the joy of Pulse. It's important. And so I just tell you, we, we live differently here in Orlando, and we're hoping to share that you know, if you come and you visit it, and you, when, the, when the museum is finished, you come and have that experience there, that you go back to your community, changed and empowered to do, to make it different where you live. Well, there's something I'd like to say, Barbara, because it, it's the one thing, and I've I've been to uh, the memorial. Michael Labors has been there, the interim memorial that is mm-hmm. currently at Pulse. But the one thing that I picked up on, and and and, and just bear with it for a minute, if you please. Years ago, they designed and built a memorial on the, on the National Mall in Washington, D.C. that created a tremendous amount of controversy, first of all, because of its design, second of all, because of its simplicity. And, of course, I'm speaking of the Vietnam Wall, the Vietnam Memorial. Mm-hmm. But something mm-hmm. happened. People started leaving things at that wall. From, and, and I've seen it for myself, having lived and worked in that city. Everything from pictures of loved ones whose names are up on the wall to literal six packs of beer to combat boots to medals, including a couple Medal of Honors, to uniform bits and pieces, to family snapshots, to you name it. It's a sense of a greater community. And I, I thought about that as I was walking along the inter-memorial in Orlando at Pulse, is that's really what you guys have accomplished is, in many ways, Barbara, you're kind of continuing the mission of, of the same same kind of feeling and thought that occurred from, you know, those stark black panels carved with names in Washington, D.C., to a horrible, horrible war and, and, and such loss and turning it into a positive thing 
and yet here we are in Orlando, and we're kind of repeating that. And it seems to me that that's something that should be emphasized, that it's about a sense of community. It's about a sense of continuance. Life does go on. Things happen, but we can be stronger. And how about we stand up for the best part? Uh, you know, Brandon uh, reacted by getting together with uh, Drew and Juan's best friends, and they established the Drew Project and in mm-hmm. Drew's name. And as you know, <laughs> so, mm-hmm. you know, it's the message going forward, I think, is the most important thing. So anyway, yeah. that's my two best yeah. words. Yeah, in in many ways, you're embodying the phoenix. I mean, rising powerfully out of the ashes, and and doing amazing, amazing good things. And you know, that is definitely the the honor to know Brandon and what he's done from from being literally in the bathroom of the club um, as that was going on and 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 moving forward. But speaking of moving forward, um, I do want to focus this on, you know, the support that, that you need and the fundraising. What, what is going on to help um, make all of this a reality? Yes, well, we have to raise the funds to do it. I, I often re, re kind of make a little joke that I, we are so happy we, we got our national designation from the federal government, but that came with no funding. So uh, this project <laughs> is on us. On, <laughs> it is on this community to build. I, I say to people, you know, where you, everyone, I, everywhere I go, everyone tells me their June 12th story. I hear it. I love hearing them. We are still it's part of our extended communities all over the country. Everyone knows where they stood, how they cried, and what they did to support that day. Well, we need you to show up still. You know, we need you to support this project. We need to make sure it gets accomplished. It is the stonewall of our generation. We can't have it be erased, right? I mean, you think about Matthew Shepard's tragedy in Lambing, Wyoming, and you can't even pay homage to a defense post because it's gone. And that happened in our lifetime, that you can't even pay your respects to him there. And so I, we need to make sure that we, you know, have you know, take the responsibility of getting this built. And so we are going to spend, you know, the next couple of years just continuing to raise money, and that means traveling from city to city. So I will be, uh, me and, and other people with the, with the um, mission will be traveling from city to city. We'll be in Los Angeles, actually, flying out there tomorrow, and I'll be there for a few days, and then in San Francisco. And the idea is to meet with, you know, individuals who are interested in supporting it, learning more about it, corporations, foundations, family foundations, um, having some you know, grassroots events, you know, meeting up at, a, at the local gay bars and, and seeing people and listening to their stories and, and talking about ours and, and just remembering that it's going to take all of us to do it. How can um, somebody individually who wants to contribute both find out more and um, also make a contribution? Um, is there a website um, that they can go to? Sure. You just go to onepulsefoundation.org, and there's a donate button right there. You can click and donate straight from there. To learn more, there's I think there's an email address called info at onepulsefoundation.org, and just um, send your email there, and we get those messages and, and review that daily, and we'll be in touch with you. But you know, we uh, look look for us to come to your city, and if you're in a city and you want us to come there, and you think we're having a small event there, if you think there are people that want to talk about it and, and see the project and learn about it and support it. Um, that's, what we're going to, that's what we're going to be doing the next few years. Yeah, excellent. And I want to give a heads up to our Los Angeles listeners. 
um, that um, your first opportunity is coming up very quickly. It's this Sunday, February 6th. Um, there will be a drag show and dining um, in the heart of West Hollywood at um, Ro- Rocco's Lounge. Um, and uh, it starts at 2 p.m. Um, you know, some fabulous drag queens and looks like a really, really awesome event. Um, Barbara, will you be in attendance there for that? Oh, yes. Yeah. Definitely. It's actually my favorite part of the fundraising is when we get to go to drag brunch. <laughs> my favorite, like, at this physical time. <laughs> just a little bit of, yeah, it's my favorite part of the job. <laughs> and so where, uh, what is your tour like? Uh, what, I know you're planning San Francisco. Where do you go after that? I'll come back to Orlando, and I believe I'll be in New York next month. So it's usually one week a month I'm traveling and sometimes more than that, but um, I'll be coming home right after San Francisco. Yeah. And just, just so you know, it's, I do remember, uh, you know, you're absolutely right that, you know, there are a lot of us who remember exactly where we were uh, when we heard about it. Um, obviously, we're on California time here, and I was mm-hmm. awoken at um, 7 a.m. I was the host of a, um, a local um, show, uh, radio show, and my co-host called uh, at 7 in the morning, and she was already starting a vigil um, that was going to take place um, that afternoon on the 13th here in Santa Cruz. Um, and she was reaching out to the community, you know, informing people and, and having people show up. And um, we were out there in the afternoon with candles and, and um, holding space even even this far away. Um, yeah, so it's... You know, our hearts are and our souls are really with you, and and you are such an inspiration to to take tragedies in your life and turn them around in such a magnificent way on on each step, um, from your brother's passing to to this. Um, what what do you what is the reaction? You know, you talked about Orlando. Um, what about the rest of Florida? It, it's such a contentious spot right now um, is mm-hmm. the this this movement of of the elevation of pulse um, is it influencing people are they seeing it do they understand and you mean are people are people with us on this project I mean in Orlando it's yes I mean I don't know if Orlando is a little bubble in, bubble in our state but to be honest with you, my family's in South Florida in the Parkland Coral Springs area, and every time I travel down there or I've been to Palm Beach fundraising, there isn't anybody that we meet and talk about this project that they're not, they don't say yes. How can I help? Okay. So I have a, yeah, I mean, we have great uh, local, county, and state support here in our state. Um, everyone wants to see the project get done. Um, I, I think that, of course, you're always going to have some. You're going to have some naysayers, right? It's just fact of life. Can't please everyone, but the majority of people that we encounter, they all understand the importance of this project. I'm just hoping that the safe space that you create, and how the the wonderful ideals that you're putting forward with this, inspire the rest of kind of the Floridian politics, if you will, um, of mm-hmm. certain sectors that are currently, you know, specifically attacking um, the transgender community. And, um, mm-hmm. you know, we, th- this was the subject of our show last week, which uh, was just, you know, 
as it was brought out, that a lot of it is politics for show, you know, scapegoatism, a lot of that going on. But I'm, this is so inspiring. And, and there's, a, there's a beautiful innocence about it that I'm hoping, you know, influences the whole culture. We do, too. That's the plan. Yeah. Uh, Barbara, this is usually the part of the show, and, and, and I, I, will, I will make it the part of the show, where I, I turn back to you and ask you, what, what should we have asked about that we haven't discussed yet? Well, we talked a lot about our education programs and the fundraising, which is so helpful, so I really appreciate that. One other program that we have that's uh, interesting is it's our 49 Legacy Scholarships. We have a scholarship in each one of the victim's names that was designated by their family members or loved one in our victim's um, either career aspiration or career had they achieved it. So, for instance, like Amanda Alvier wanted to become a nurse, but she hadn't done that yet, so her scholarship is designated towards nursing. So we have, we're in the middle of our third cycle already. We have already um, completed two cycles of scholarships. Uh, on our third, and these scholarships range from, I swear, from literally EMT to cosmetology all the way to medical. We've got lawyers, we've got med schools, you have, so it's undergrad, it's postgraduate. Um, there are national scholarships. We have scholars all over the country. Don't even have to be LGBTQ+, because not all of our angels were, right? Um, so they're truly open to everyone, and um, we just encourage people to, if you need help and you think this scholarship could help you, um, encourage you to, to look into it and apply next year. Wow, that that is that is astounding, and I totally got goosebumps on, all over that. Uh, where do people find out about the scholarships, and um, is there a listing of each each one individually? Mm-hmm. Yes, again, it's on our website, onepulsefoundation.org. You'll find the scholarship program there. Um, you will see each victim's name and what their scholarships for. You'll see past recipients, um, and these 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 kids. Some of them are not kids; they're adults. Um, are just incredible because it's really unlike any other scholarship program because I we really didn't want to focus on someone's SAT scores being a mom of three whose children could not take that test um, it was really more important to me what kind of human you are so they're mostly short answers about you know why do you feel you, know, you can carry on the legacy of an angel you know what is your relationship to what happened that day or what do you know about it what, what have you done in your community is to be a leader or to help um, so we really um, focus on the human um, themselves and their aspirations and how they connect to this angel. And the, some of the families have met via Zoom, the recipients, and it means so much to them. Everyone's crying and talking about it. But uh, it's just one of the most beautiful things that I've ever watched, really. It, it, it's, it's incredibly beautiful, um, so inspiring. I, I love the fact that it is so personalized that, I mean, it really is a living legacy to each individual person um, that mm-hmm. that was there. Um, you know, I, I kind of want to take you back to your brother. What what do you think he's thinking right now about everything that's happened and everything you're doing? I don't. I get you know. I get asked this question all the time, and I don't know. I could just see John. Just I don't know if he's just shaking his head, if he's just smiling, if he's holding up a glass, toasting it. Um, I know after it happened, I remember looking up to this guy going, "Really." Really, was this the plan? You know, <laughs> come on. And uh, yeah. but I'm sure, knowing him, he is celebrating it, and he is happy to see that um, there's a movement. And I and I, I I do that with him every single time 
any progress is made in the LGBTQ community. When, when marriage was you know, voted on and, and I looked up and I was like, see, it could happen because he missed out on so much in his lifetime. Yeah. Yeah, it's, um, I wrote a piece um, after marriage equality because I'd lost so many. I mean, I'd lost 40 close friends. And I wrote really, you know, with the perspective of what each one of them would, would think and say about it. Um, I do have to tell you, as, as, as a gay man with a little sister, that um, were I in, in his shoes or with his angel wings, um, I would be incredibly proud of you. Um, you know, you are, you are the ideal of what a little sister is and should be. Um, you know, and, and I think everything that you've been doing and working on, um, and I'm sure you're going to accomplish it all because you, you, your vision is so strong. Um, this cannot help but be an absolute reality. But, um, yeah, I didn't know him, but I absolutely know he's so proud of you. Well, thank you so much. Thank you. Brody, since you were there, I'm going to kind of give you the last words on this. I just want to urge our listeners to go to the website to support uh, Barbara M. One Pulse. Um, you know, we are Orlando. We are all Orlando Strong, and we are all One Pulse. So, anything you can do to help, uh, you know, let's make this let's make this a reality for the foundation, uh, because the legacy moves beyond Barbara. It, it moves beyond um, a lot of others. It, it is for, you know, future generations, you know, to understand contextually, you know, what it is about our community. And, and at the end of the day, that our community is in and of itself a very vibrant, strong part of the greater whole of humanity. And if anything came out of Pulse, that would have to be that, you know, we came together as a family, we came together as a community, and that's what's important. So yeah. for those of you that have uh, debit cards, credit cards, or PayPal, go to the website, log in, donate, let's do this thing. Los Angeles, she will be at Rocco's this Sunday at Lance uh, Bass's place there off Santa Monica Boulevard. Go, enjoy yourself, watch the drag show, have a good time, uh, and, and let's, uh, let's see what we can do uh, to make this happen. And Barbara, on behalf of myself and the rest of Queer Media, thank you for being you. Thank you very much. Thank you. Thanks a lot. Yeah. And Barbara, um, in San Francisco, is there an event planned at this point or um, – more networking. I don't. I think it's more networking. I'm not sure if there's an event, a public event planned there yet. Probably next time. This is our first trip there, so um, we probably need to make some connections as well. As you know, Lance serves on our on our board, so it was really easy for us for him to do that. And, and our good friend and, and donor, David Cooley, the owner of the Abbey, has hosted us quite a few times in the years past. So we have great connections in LA. You know, your city is so good to us. So I think we are, we're starting new there, and we we'll hopefully make some new friends while we're there. Well, I yes, definitely, and I would echo everything Brody 
just said, and I would uh, specifically ask um, our listeners who are in whatever city you're in and whatever um, establishments they're in, there, there are safe spaces, and it would be really good if each safe space could do a, a pulse celebration night and do fundraisers and, and orient towards this memorial, because I really feel like this is going to be a national memorial that will be a destination for all of us as a place that at some point we need to get to, we need to see, and we need to experience. Um, I think it's going to be that kind of place. And, um, and Barbara, as we keep saying, you know, I know we're fawning all over you, but um, you are truly an inspiration on so many levels. And your bravery, um, your vision, um, your strength, uh, that's, you know, that's so unique and so wonderful and, and inspiring. Um, and with that, I want to thank you again for being you. I want to thank you very much for joining us today. Um, I want to thank Brody for his work on the LA Blade and, um, and as, as came up in this show, his history as being a long-term um, beat reporter and being in a lot of places at, at a lot of times um, and his perspective on that. And I want to thank our listeners for tuning in. Um, we will again have an incredible show next week. And as you know, I have no idea what it is. They let me know when I show up here. Um, but I do know that it will be fantastic, and you will want to tune in. Please tell all your friends to subscribe. Um, we talk about some really important things, and they and you need to know about it. So for me and the rest of the team here at Raise LGBT Radio, um, we will talk to you again next week. You've been listening to Rated LGBT Radio. With the Lucky Land Plus, you can get lucky just about anywhere. This is your captain speaking. Uh, we've got clear runway and the weather's fine, but we're just going to circle up here a while and uh, get lucky. No, no, nothing like that. It's just these cash prizes add up quick. So I suggest you sit back, keep your tray table upright, and start getting lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details.